This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Before we start, a content warning. This episode contains references to sexual assault and violence. I'm not going to... You know, sully these proceedings by saying, I'm sorry, that doesn't cut it. This should never have happened. But based upon my review of the motions and the representations of counsel, this court grants defendants' motion. <laughs> they take this conviction. The tears of Anthony Broadwater, a man convicted, imprisoned, but finally cleared of committing a rape back in 1981. In the tunnel where I was raped, a tunnel that was once an underground entry to an amphitheater, a place where actors burst forth from underneath the seats of a crowd, a girl had been murdered and dismembered. I was told the story by the police. In comparison, they said, I was lucky. The terrible attack and subsequent court case were turned into a memoir called Lucky. Forty years later, when the book was being turned into a film... Lucky helped exonerate the man convicted of the crime. When we finally did see the trial transcript, I mean, you can read it for yourself. It it does not reflect a lot of what Alice described in the trial. Really? It's just very interesting that a memoirist who writes a book about a rape ultimately frees the rapist based on what she wrote in her memoir. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, victims of rape, the best-selling author and the man wrongly convicted of her brutal assault. My name's Rosie Kinchin and I'm a feature writer on The Sunday Times. And a few weeks ago, I started looking into the Alice Siebold story. Now, let's start with the obvious question. In the first place, for those who don't know, who is Alice Siebold? She's an American author and well-known around the world, mainly because of her second book, which was called The Lovely Bones. It was an international bestseller. It sold around 10 million copies. And I must have read it in my late teens, early 20s. And it was a really striking book. It's told from the perspective of a 14-year-old girl who has been raped and killed. She's the protagonist and the narrator. And you follow her as she's watching the community and her family, obviously, trying to deal with the aftermath of her death. Yeah, it was a very striking way of telling a story, wasn't it? And it then became a movie by Peter Jackson, the guy who did Lord of the Rings. Seabold's book, The Lovely Bones, as you say, starts with uh, a rape. 
And that relates back to Seabold's own life and her own first book. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so when she was 18 years old, she was a student at Syracuse University in New York State, and she was raped one night when she was walking home from a party. She never had sex before. She was a virgin. And this brutal experience, it basically formed the basis of her first book, which she published sort of almost a decade after she'd left the university. That is a memoir. It's called Lucky. And it's an account of of the attack. And like it goes into some really searing detail of what happened that night. And then the subsequent trial of her attacker. She's unflinching in her description of what happened that night. He pounded my skull into the brick. He cursed me. He turned me around and sat on my chest. I was babbling. I was begging. Here is where he wrapped his hands around my neck and began to squeeze. For a second, I lost consciousness. When I came to, I knew I was staring up into the eyes of the man who would kill me. It was a prolonged attack. He's sort of getting angry and and then having, you know, getting tearful. And she's almost having to sort of cajole him in order to try and stay alive throughout this experience. And it's horrible, you know, really quite nasty. She's the victim of this rape. And then she's involved in identifying her attacker. Can you tell us a bit about that? She's in a terrible state and she goes and reports it to the police. She has this sort of secondary trauma of having to undergo the physical examinations and the police interrogations. Then she goes home for the holidays. And there's a feeling amongst the family that she shouldn't go back to that university, that she should go somewhere else and and start again. But she wants to. She's very determined that she'll, she'll go back to Syracuse. So she decides to go back, knowing that she might see her attacker again. The memoir takes you through it, and it's definitely on her mind that she might see him. And she's still obviously reeling from it. I mean, really struggling to come to terms with it. And she's a literature student, and it sort of comes out in her writing very quickly through poetry, trying to find an outlet for the anger. And then shortly into that next term after the attack, she's walking down a street in Syracuse and she sees a man walking past her. It's a black man. Her attacker was a black man. She thinks she hears him saying something to her like, don't I know you from somewhere, girl? She thinks immediately that's him. That's the guy who attacked me. And she sees this throwaway comment in passing as a taunt to her because she thinks that he remembers her as well. So she gets back to the university campus, calls the police and says that she's seen him. They're able to figure out who it was because there was a policeman further down the road behind her. They're able to identify who it was and they arrest him and they charge him. Now, let's talk about him. Who is the man that they arrested? What's this, What's his story? His name is Anthony Broadwater. He had grown up in the city he had several brothers, and I think maybe one or two of the brothers had been in and out of trouble with, with the police over the years. But he had been in the Marines and had left the Marines to come back and look after his dad, and that had been just a couple of months beforehand. So he now finds himself accused of this brutal crime, and he's actually convicted. Tell me what happens to him and what happens to him after release. The trial lasts for two days, and it's very short. He's found guilty He ends up serving 16 and a half years and then he's released, but he's still on the sex offenders register, never really able to to live a normal life. I mean, he can't he can't rent apartments easily. There's a lot of work he can't get. It just hangs over him forever. Basically, He, he, he tries many times to overturn the conviction without success. 
as far as Alice Siebold is concerned at this point, the right man has been put in prison. As far as he's concerned, he is an innocent man and who has uh, who served 16 and a half years, and then when he comes out, has to say on the sex offenders register. And then you get this extraordinary story of how his innocence is established. Now, could you take a step-by-step step through that? Because it really is odd. Last January, a guy called Timothy Mucciante, a former lawyer and former journalist, and he's now working in production and he gets taken on as executive producer on a film adaptation of Lucky, Alice Siebold's memoir. I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago and he, he said to me that at the time he was not familiar with, with Alice's work particularly. So he, starts, he started reading the, the memoir and the first part of the book he found very compelling and, and distressing. But the second part of the book he started to get really worried about primarily the scene around the lineup. So before the trial, Alice is asked to identify her attacker from a police lineup and she picks out the wrong guy. She picks out number five when actually it's number four. Again, in the book, you get this whole like, she's just not sure. And then she comes out and she says to one of the other officers, they were like identical twins, those two. And another officer makes an off the cuff comment going, you picked the wrong one. I mean, you you get the sense of her as like an 18 year old and she's like, let her team down. And then crucially, the assistant district attorney, who's this woman called Gail Ubelhoyer, says, they do this all the time. You just got taken in by this trick that they pull. And essentially, the idea that she gave her was that Broadwater and the guy who she actually picked in the lineup were good buddies and routinely did this in police lineups. They would stand next to one another. One of them would stare at the floor. The other one would stare directly up at the glass in front of them to get her off balance and get her to choose the wrong one. So Muciante read this and thought, what? I mean, those conversations just shouldn't be happening. I mean, he'd worked as as a lawyer. He knew that those were not conversations that a deputy district attorney should be having with a witness or a victim in a rape trial. Completely inappropriate for an assistant district attorney to make these kind of statements. I I do think that Alice was led astray. Um, She was an 18-year-old young woman. Yeah, she didn't know any better, the assistant district attorney. Mm. I'm letting her down the wrong road. And, you know, Anthony Broadwater served 16 and a half years in prison. He was labeled as a sex offender. Couldn't get a job, couldn't get a proper home. Essentially, is what he's saying is the deputy DA is effectively leading the witness, as we might yeah. call it. In other words, trying to push her in the direction of saying, no, it was Broadwater. Yeah, absolutely. She's suggesting that this person has done this before and she's almost sort of training her to to correct her error, teaching her how to navigate her way through this when she gets to the trial. So rather than thinking, hold on a second, maybe we've got the wrong person, they are sort of trying to manoeuvre a way of still going ahead with the prosecution. Initially, he brushes aside his worries. So he tells himself that this book will have been checked by lawyers and that, you know, they'll have looked into it, so he shouldn't worry about it. So he gets on with the job. He wasn't the only person involved who began to get real problems with the production, was he? You've got to remember that the timing of this was early 2021, so shortly after the George Floyd murder and the Black Lives Matter protests across America. And... 
they had lined up a black actor to play the attacker in in the film and then he pulled out of the running for it and saying that he felt very uncomfortable with the fact that this film was perpetuating this stereotype of the black man as an aggressor and the white woman as a victim. The director and her team decided that they were going to cast a white actor instead in that role, so they were going to flip it. She broadly agreed that it could lead to the death of innocent black men. I think that was that was what the actor worried would happen. Muchanti felt very strongly that this was not the right thing to do because it was a deviation too far from the truth of the story. He was fired, I think, in September. And at that point, he thought, well, now I can look into what it is about this story that's been making me so uncomfortable the whole time anyway. And so he hired a private investigator called Dan Myers, who is a guy who had worked in law enforcement for many years and had many contacts in Syracuse. He must have felt quite strongly about it, Mucianti, to invest his own money and getting a private eye. So he yeah. must have. I mean, I did ask him. I asked him, you know, like, what were you actually trying to find at this point? And he said he didn't know what he was trying to find. And he said that, you know, if you knew me, that would make more sense. But I'm the sort of person who, if something's bothering me, I'm going to keep picking up stones until I figure out what is what's the cause of it. Coming up, we'll find out more about what was causing Timothy Muccianti such unease. But first... Hi, I'm Emily Dugan, social affairs correspondent at The Sunday Times. It's you, listeners and subscribers, who enable me to investigate... Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. If you subscribe today, you can enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As we've been hearing, Timothy Muccianti hired Syracuse PI Dan Myers to track down the man who, aged 21, was convicted of Alice Siebold's brutal rape. 
He found ex-Marine Anthony Broadwater living in a dilapidated flat in Syracuse with the woman he had married after serving 16 and a half years in prison. Released in 1999, Broadwater had remained a registered sex offender for two decades. Myers went and met him with a colleague and they spent an hour talking to him. And, you know, they're not amateurs. These are guys who've been doing this sort of work for a long time, but they came out just 100% convinced that he had not done it, um, that he was innocent and that he'd been wrongfully convicted. What were the reasons for them thinking that, in addition to just the process problems? Well, there are a number of small things. Like, one of the things Mucciante said to me is that the attacker was supposed to be right-handed. First time I met Anthony... He had to sign a a paper for the uh, private investigator. And I noticed that Anthony signed it with his left hand. And Alice's assailant was right-handed. Oh, my goodness. You know, I had already talked to him. I had seen Dan's investigatory notes. And, you know, I I was already pretty convinced he was innocent. Uh, But the minute he signed that form with his left hand, I knew that this guy didn't do this. There was a perfectly good explanation for the throwaway comment. The policeman standing behind Alice was the person who Broadwater was calling out to because he already knew him. They'd known each other going back some years. And that policeman had testified as much in court. We found out that Anthony had no criminal background at all. Yeah. And uh, he had never, ever been in a lineup. So what this district attorney was saying, that Anthony and this other fellow did this all the time was complete rubbish. They got hold of the court transcripts and they went through it all. And and the basis of the case against Broadwater was twofold. One of them was this microscopic hair evidence, which has basically been debunked as junk science. They had a hair from Alice's body from the attacker and Broadwater voluntarily provided a, a pubic hair from his own body. And in those days, they believed that they could prove whether or not those hairs matched, whether they were the same person. So you're supposed to use at least 24 hairs, for example, when they only used one. It wasn't even done thoroughly or correctly. And basically, that's the only forensic evidence that they had to suggest that Broadwater was involved in any way. And the only other evidence they had was this sort of very ropey identification that she'd then got wrong in the lineup. Presumably it comes out in court that she has identified the wrong person. How do they deal with that? It's pretty much swept aside as though it's, it, it, they don't go into the background of this claim that he does it all the time. That isn't dwelt on. All that is dwelt on is that they look remarkably similar. And that seems to just be accepted. You know, one of the things that Michante said to me was that the racial undertones of the whole trial are really uncomfortable when you start actually reading through the transcripts. Was Alice Seibold asked, therefore, to identify Broadwater in court? Part of their effort to try and, you know, make up for the fact that she's got the wrong person in the identity parade is that she's asked, can you see the guy who raped you in this room? And she points at Anthony Broadwater, but there was no other black man in the room. She had never been able to give a cogent description of her attacker in the whole case. All of a sudden, when he's the only black guy in the room, then she could describe him. It just seems insane that you know you have the raped white woman who's identifying the only black guy in the courtroom. I mean, how much more racist can we get? Is it your impression, Rosie, that now, 40 years on, it would be most unlikely that people would make this reliance upon eyewitness evidence of this kind? I think it's broadly accepted that it's really quite unreliable eyewitness evidence. And the Innocence Project, who campaigned for for wrongful convictions in America, they said there are 359 
cases that had been exonerated on the basis of DNA evidence, and 70% of those, the original convictions, had been based on eyewitness evidence. You may recall that we've recently looked at the trouble with eyewitness identification on stories of our times. In the Malkinson series, Jennifer Thompson of the charity Healing Justice spoke about how she had misidentified an African-American man as her rapist back in 1984. Someone saying, that's a great job, that's who we thought it was. When that was said to me after the uh, identification of the photographic lineup, then, of course, I'm absolutely positive that I got it right. And I think it's really important to understand two things that are critical. One is that no crime victim, no crime survivor wants an innocent person to go to prison. People need to understand that. You have been raped, you've been traumatized, you've been violated, you've been hurt, right? The second thing to understand is it's not the individual who is making the mistake. It is the criminal justice system that sets up these procedures that are flawed to begin with. Oftentimes, investigators will give leading information that begins to corrupt or contaminate the person's memory. And once you start corrupting and contaminating memory, it's contaminated. It's now become a new memory and sometimes a false memory. Anthony Broadwater's current legal team raised the issue of what they call cross-race bias. Um, What does cross-race bias mean? It's the term used to describe the fact that eyewitness identifications are even less reliable when you are identifying someone of a different race. We as humans are flawed when it comes to being able to recognise and identify people of a different race to ourselves. I think it was initially coined in, in 1969, so it was a known phenomenon at the time of the trial, but there's now been a whole body of, of research to back it up. One of the studies that they quoted was this 2001 analysis of 39 research articles involving 5,000 witnesses, which showed that cross-race identification was 56% more likely to be wrong than same-race identification. 56%? Yeah. When you were talking to Muchianti and when you were looking at it yourself, to what extent did you get the impression that the way in which the prosecutors and the court case unfolded had a racial undertow, a bit like something out of To Kill a Mockingbird. The whole way through, the prosecution highlight the fact that she's middle class, her father's an academic, she's white, she was a virgin, she was dressed sensibly, she wasn't drunk. It's almost as though these are like good points, ticks that go by her name. None of it proves that he is specifically the person who attacked her. It just sort of heightens her innocence and builds this sort of sense of guilt around him. He almost barely seems to be present in it. He's not really a part of the case. The case is just her innocence. Almost as if he doesn't have the right to a story. Yeah. And what's really strange is that Alice is obviously very aware of that herself because she talks about race so often in the book. From the moment of the rape, she's conscious of the racial dynamic to the whole thing. The fear she feels around certain black men. She hears racist comments from her dad for the first time. And, you know, even during the trial, she observes that it wasn't the first time and it wouldn't be the last time that she wished her rapist had been white. Siebold is sensitive to the problem of race being a factor in here. But of course, she is convinced or has been convinced that actually it was her attacker who was jailed. But 
After Muciente came forward, the conviction was overturned, it seems, very quickly. Yeah, extremely quickly. The lawyers for Anthony Broadwater put forward this appeal to overturn the conviction. Um, And you would expect the state to try and fight back, you know, at this point, to go, well, we've secured this conviction, we're right. And instead, the district attorney, William Fitzpatrick, said it was professionally sickening. This is not Alabama in 1950. This was Syracuse, New York in 1982. And State Supreme Court Justice Gordon Cuffey said, I'm not going to sully this proceeding by saying, I'm sorry, that doesn't cut it. It just shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have been okay. So what they're saying is, this guy has served 16 years in jail, and then when released has been on the sex offenders register, but was not guilty. Which means, effectively, that his life has been ruined by this process. I couldn't help but cry. The relief that a district attorney of that magnitude would, would, would side with me concerning this case is it, it's, it's, it's so profound. I did everything I could do to always show people that, hey, I'm never that type of guy. I never could be that type of guy. A lot of doors have been slammed in my face for jobs. He was released in 99. He's done like odd jobs, working as a bin man during night shifts. He tried to train to refit air conditioning units and was sort of escorted off campus when they found out that he was on the sex offenders register. He got married, but was very uncomfortable with the idea of sharing his life with somebody without them knowing about his past. So he made her read the transcripts of the trial so that she knew exactly what she was getting involved with. She wanted children. I wouldn't bring children to the world because of this. And now we're past age, we can't have children. What I found particularly painful when I was reading up on it was his repeated attempts to try and clear his name, you know, from a position of total powerlessness. And and I think that's what makes this case so appalling. It's this dreaded word, privilege. But, you know, Alice Siebold, as an international best-selling author with literary clout and a lot of money, I don't think she even goes into the fact that he's protesting his innocence in the book. It's almost like, <laughs> again, he's just wiped out of the story at this point. He's, it's It's extraordinary. The contrast between their paths and where the power lies and and who is the person that is listened to and who has a voice is is really striking. What does Muchanti think of the book Lucky and of how it was written? He was quite critical, to be honest. Her account of the attack, he doesn't question in one on any level. It's a terrible thing. It's a it's a brutal thing to have experienced and even to read about. You know, it's a, you get a sense of how awful the whole thing was. But he did say that in, he felt quite uncomfortable going through the transcripts and seeing the discrepancies between her portrayal of the trial and how the trial actually went. She says that there is a report that entered into evidence that matched Anthony's pubic hair that was found on her to his pubic hair in 17 out of 17 points. Mm. So it was an identical match. And if you read the transcript, that's not at all what the expert testified to, first of all. And second of all, there never was such a report in the trial. We have the entire district attorney file, all the police reports. It's not in there either. So where did this Where did this report come from that she makes reference to in the book? The film version of Lucky has been scrapped. That's not going to happen. What's happened to the book? They've taken it out of print, haven't they? And I think they're now revising it, or they're going to revise it with Alice. I got hold of the book in a digital version two and a half, three weeks ago from Amazon. At that point, 
Seabold hadn't commented yet and the, the publishers were still holding firm, but I think it's been deleted from all online retailers, so the digital version no longer exists. What has Alice Seabold said to Anthony Broadwater since all this happened? She put out a statement to the Press Association saying that she's extremely sorry for her role in it and that he is another victim of a flawed American justice system and she's still grappling with the fact that, in all likelihood, her attacker will never be caught. And has Broadwater taken that? He's been very, very gracious about it and said that he sees them both as victims. And he's he's not sort of angry and out for anything in particular from her. I'm very interested in that because... I have got an increasing sense over a couple of days looking into this that there are some people out there who are very keen to blame her for what has happened rather than the system that put pressure on an 18-year-old to identify him. What do you think about that? Yes, there is a sense that, you know, she should pay. I do think that's a bit misguided, to be honest. He doesn't want that from her. She was a victim of a terrible thing too. And she believed that they had got the right man. She had no reason not to believe that because that's what the prosecution had led her to believe. So I think that it is quite unjustified. It sort of fits a narrative quite conveniently, doesn't it, of a rich white woman accusing a, a poor black man. Whether or not she should decide out of moral duty to give him some form of recompense is a different question but I don't think she's herself guilty she hasn't done it on purpose I almost feel that it's absolutely not her job to do that she was the victim of an absolutely appalling attack when she was very young the system pushed her firmly in direction of uh, Broadwater once she'd made the initial faulty identification. It is absolutely the job of the system to give the restitution to the man that they tried so hard to wrongly convict. Yes, ultimately it will be within the district attorney's responsibility. The film version of Alice Siebel's Lucky will not now happen, but there will be something in its place. Timothy Muccianti is producing a documentary to be called Unlucky. At last, at the age of 61, Anthony Broadwater has a voice. I hope that I can give some inspiration to somebody and say, hey, if you're not guilty of something, do not give in. I've been yelling and screaming and and exhausting all my finances to prove my innocence. It finally came. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich. My guest was Associate Editor Rosie Kinchin, and you can read more of her work at thetimes.co.uk. If anyone has been affected by this episode or would like information about support available, please email feedback at times.radio. The producer was Marilyn Rust, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. And if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk which have been published for over a century. 
In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>